0: You're listening to Putting It In Writing, a Headstuff podcast about Irish publishing. In each episode, we take a look at the different parts of the industry and find out how they work and whether they're working. the 20th century, just prior to the inception of the Irish state, ideas of Ireland and Irishness were partially influenced by the desire to revive. The idea that there was something authentic and inherently unique in our cultural identity which had to be recovered. Throughout the 20th century Ireland was at the very least the origin of great literary talent. The achievements of writers such as Joyce and Beckett, among many others, fueled the notion of the country as a land of saints and scholars Nowadays, despite efforts to the contrary, the same small selection of big names are continually held forth as representative of Irish culture. Ferries and bars adorned with the likeness of our great literary men belie the true identity of Irish literature. Though the repeatedly cliched references to Ireland's literary provenance may rankle with those who feel neglected by modern policy, the number of books published by Irish writers to international acclaim poses the question Where does Irish publishing figure amongst all of this success? Let's take a look at the numbers. The National Library is one of eight copyright libraries in Ireland, which means it acquires a copy of every item published here by law. Between 2006 and 2009, the National Library took in over 2,000 titles a year. If we take a 300-page novel as an average, that's about 40 metres of shelf space every year. If you're more interested in clock-ins, Irish Publishing as a whole worked just over 3 million hours in 2011. That's compared with over 48 million hours in the UK and almost 58 million in Germany. But to measure the scale of the operation is perhaps asking the wrong question. After all, many people consider it rude to ask how much they earn or how many hours in the week they work. A lot of energy is spent interacting with the finished product what happens before the handwritten idea is purchased as a printed book. As an example of something which is between written notes and printed copy, here is an excerpt from a new short story by Hugh Fulham McQuillan. Hugh has previously been published in Gorse and the Stinging Fly, and he is currently working on a collection of short fiction.
1: Apparently no hair has ever grown on the palms, the soles of the feet, the lips, never in all our years. That skin is glabrous, hairless, What is left of the body is mostly covered in thick terminal or fine downy hair. The finest strand is very thin, about 13 micrometres. No thicker than a thread of spider's web doubled by dew, just before the droop, I think. I remember reading about a gland found at the opening of each hair. It produces a fatty secretion that lubricates the hair, that prevents it from dying. I had not been to the barber for four years. My reasons are not uncommon. Small talk, sport talk, pop songs. As always, there is something else too, just beyond my understanding. When I finally went, he was not there. The door opened at my push. The stairs were steady under my steps. The radio was banal. The barber was gone. The air was hot outside, hot even for midsummer. Whether for people to enjoy, or do their very best to. I asked for him in the hairdresser's two shops down, in the belief there must be some link between the two professions. The girl said he could no longer do it. I asked if she could. She said she would, but quickly. It was almost closing time. I watched my hair fall to my cape-covered arms on my knees, for I jiggled it to the floor. I puffed upward when it landed on my nose, blinked furiously when a strand bl- bounced on my eyelashes. Too many hairs. So much. I hate when a man with a shaved head sits in front of me on the bus. The number of shorn black dots is so dizzying I have to look down to my hands to stop the nausea. It repulses me, somehow, the knowledge that there are so many. In preparation for my haircut, I had avoided reading those sentences that estimate the number of hairs a person has, but now, seeing them fall, I found myself wanting to know how many might grow on the average head. I needed to know this and on the average person too, counting especially those downy strands, unseen by all, but the most thorough lover.
0: We'll be hearing more from Hugh later in the show. In the meantime, as previously mentioned, I'm going to be visiting people at various stages in the bookmaking process. My first stop is one of Dublin's city libraries on Pierce Street, just down the road from Headstuff HQ. The library is an attractive Georgian building with renovations on the inside, including a large modern extension. First, I asked the staff working front of house, so to speak, to introduce themselves. Well, my name's Arthur
2: Sheridan, and I work as a library attendant, a relief attendant, so I move around all the libraries. Okay. And uh, I do a bit of writing on the side. Very good. And I've won the P.J. O'Connor Award in 2011, so I've had some success at the writing in a small way and uh, I'd mostly read permaculture books, that's okay. a type of gardening.
3: I'm um, the librarian the, in, the, in the branch in Peer Street. Peer Street has a few services and there's also people behind working behind the scenes in the UNESCO City Literature Office Sorry. and okay. the okay. Literary Ward Office. But I'm in the branch library downstairs. Okay. So that's like a regular branch library okay. that's um, uh, so things like arranging events and um, You know, I'm just (laughs) just blanked there, but but honestly, I'm very busy. (laughs) Just regular, overseeing regular library library work, you know, like book displays and liaising with community groups, that kind of thing.
4: Yes, um, well, I'm a library assistant with Dublin City Public Libraries, and uh, currently I'm on um, the relief panel, which means I go from library to library as required, you know, to cover leave and so on.
0: There are a variety of different roles within the library, with some leading a more nomadic working life than others. Some, however, have had their eye on the library from a very young age.
3: i always wanted course. to be a librarian oh, okay. since I was a little girl, okay. <laughs> I wanted to be. Actually, I was just thinking about that recently. I wanted yeah. to be a secret agent okay. when I, was, yeah, when I okay. was young, but I was seduced by the glamour of the public library system. Oh, <laughs> of course,
0: yeah. <laughs> there were also those working in other departments, fulfilling the other services the library provides. One of these services is the Reading Room, where library members can peruse the city records. Um, I
5: work in the Reading Room in Pier Street, which is basically the the public end of the Dublin and Irish collection of books Mm. um, and the city archives. So um, most of our emphasis would be on people interested in local history, family history, that kind of thing. It's a reference library Mm, that's based here in Pier Street.
0: I was interested to hear what sort of characters use the Reading Room.
5: Well, it can kind of go anything. It depends on who comes in the door, yeah, basically, yeah, and what yeah. questions you get get asked. So it can vary from, say, you know, a tourist coming in saying they're interested in researching their family history, yeah. to an academic coming in to have a look at, say, some of our 18th or earlier, um, uh, 18th century earlier material, mm. manuscripts. Um, or um, what in the last couple of years? What there's been a big increase in is people come in to actually look at our collection of images, uh-huh. digital images, photographs yeah. of old Dublin, uh-huh. um, prints. Um, and we have the Fall Ireland collection of images now as well, yeah. which is basically all of Ireland from the 50s and 60s, an amazing okay. resource for people. So, as I say, it can, it can vary from somebody who really doesn't have a clue, say, for example, about computers and needs to be yeah. sat down and mm-hmm. kind of work through the very basic stuff yeah. to somebody who's, you know, looking for something very obscure mm-hmm. like... Um, licences for sedan chairs in the 18th century (laughs) (laughs) in which case you panic slightly and then say I think that rings a bell somewhere and so there's great variety really in everyday's
0: work. The library also houses another office concerned with initiatives which extend outside of its traditional remit. I was lucky enough to find out about the UNESCO City of Literature.
6: My name is Jackie Lynham and I work in Dublin City Libraries and I'm in the UNESCO City of Literature office. So we organise events to promote Dublin as a city of literature. Okay. And part of that is that we organise the One City, One Book Festival. Okay. So that's been taking place for the last 11 years. Yeah. And we pick a book each month that has a connection with the city, either through the author or the team of the book.
0: Last year's choice was Fallen by Leah Mills. It was also the first year events were held in two cities, as two coachloads of Dubliners, including Mills and the Lord Mayor, travelled to Belfast. Jackie also filled me in on the Dublin Literary Award.
6: I'm not sure if you're aware of the Dublin Literary Award, uh, which is actually administered by the libraries here as well, okay. So it was formerly known as the IMPAC, and it's the highest okay. prize money in the world for, um, for a prize.
0: The prize is awarded each June and is worth €100,000, making it the most valuable literary prize in the world. You may be pleased to hear, however, that not all the events are glamorous award ceremonies.
6: Yes, yeah, so it will be events organising yes. mostly. So, okay. as well as the One City One Book, we also have a citywide read initiative for children. Okay. So, I would be the person that would primarily organise that. Okay. So, that happens every year from January to March. Okay. And we, p- it's, it's sort of like a One City One Book for Children in that yeah. we pick a okay. particular book and it runs over a two month period where we encourage as many children as possible to read that book. Yeah. So, okay. we tie that in with the branch libraries in Dublin City oh, okay. and also the yeah. homeschool liaison teachers. Okay. So yeah. this year we did a lovely book called The Book of Learning by Elizabeth Murray, okay. and it was her first novel, and it was a great success. So El- Elizabeth was up; she's from West Cork, yeah. but she came up to Dublin and did loads of events <coughs> in the libraries and got to meet loads of children. Yeah. And um, we also tied that in with we're very lucky that we have good relationships with other organisations. Yeah. So the National Library, the book, some of the scenes in the book were set in the National Library. Okay. So yeah, yeah, so we yeah. had the launch of the. Initiative there, and we also had a lovely event there where children were led up into the reading room, yeah, which yeah. is not normally <laughs> accessible yeah, to yeah. children. So that was really, really nice. Yeah. And also Waterways Ireland did an event for us, and the Hugh Lane Gallery have been very um, supportive every year, and uh, they mm. did some nice workshops based on the book. Okay. And then you. we had a, the last event for the last couple of years has been part of St Patrick's Festival, the Big mm-hmm. Day Out. Yeah we had an incredible house up in Marion Square, which was um, turned into the book from the, house, from the Book of Learning. Oh wow. And there was live rats and <laughs> magicians <laughs> and Elizabeth readings. It was a great readings.
0: The City of Literature designation focuses on the quality and quantity of publishing in any given city. In order to have quality publishing, you need a lot of people writing books. Many of our writers have to support themselves another way. To our shelter news, the idea of working by day and living the life of a writer by night may seem somewhat romanticised. But for many, writing is just another part of the day. And I, d- I do a lot of
2: monologues. I mostly write monologues when um, I'm writing, say, if I was writing a novel or a short story or a radio play or a stage play, it would be yeah. a mon- done in monologues. Okay. And so you're writing about what people think in their head, mm. you know. Okay. So it's sort of interior monologues, a lot of it. And then go. a bit of dialogue. You know, what they said to someone, what they said back, but not as direct speech, yeah. you know. Okay. So uh yeah, that's I find it easier to write that way, so hmm. I'm cheating really yeah, you yeah, know. Okay. it'd be uh it'd have teams like mo- daughter father stuff kind oh, yeah. of yeah. and daughter mother stuff, son mother stuff. So it be family stuff. Yeah and uh, it would have a sort of theme of uh identity yeah who okay. am i yeah okay. where do i come from yeah big questions yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. and it's kind of relevant at the moment with them programs are on the telly you know where uh, I can't remember the name, but what they're looking for, they're all adopted and oh they're looking okay. for their parents, their yeah, real who, who birth mothers.
0: Who do you mothers, think you are? Yeah, I think
2: there's one in England and there's one in Ireland and yes. I think there's an American one as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's got topical at the moment, but yeah. I was writing about it before they yeah, were doing it, so it. I was the <laughs> first, you know.
0: <laughs> if his themes are anything to go by, it seems Arthur has used the reading room at least once. Less mysterious is his interest in permaculture. It's sort of
2: self-sufficiency and stuff like that.
0: Okay,
2: right. And uh, that was invented by Bill Mollison uh, in Australia in the early 70s. Okay. And uh, it's a sort of lazy man's garden, really. uh, There's a lot of sort of tree, agroforestry in it. tree agriculture, where you grow things on trees so you don't have to plant it every year. You just plant it once and every year it comes up. And you just have to pick it. Yeah. So, <laughs> I kind of fancy that, you know. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's good. The library may well be a source of information in printed books, but there is also a wealth of insights and opinions on offer in the form of conversation, as I found out.
4: I mostly read fiction. Uh, currently, I'm reading a book by um, Dorothy Whipple, who was an English novelist in the 1930s and 40s. And recently, her books have been reissued by a great publishing house, Persephone Books, mm. uh, which specializes in uh, bringing um, uh, people back into print, mm. particularly women writers of of, of times of yore. <laughs> um, it's a sort of a period book, um, sort of big house type of thing. I'm
6: um, actually a member of Ricochet, has a book. Do you know Ricochet, the uh, uh, yes. presenter? So yeah, so he has a fantastic online book club okay, that yeah. he does through a, um, a Facebook page. Yeah. and i joined it last year and yeah. it's brilliant actually for introducing me to books oh, okay. that i might not you know either heard about or maybe heard about but might have read yeah okay. so i actually he picked fallen as well for this month for his choice but i've been reading quite a few of his other choices throughout mm. the year okay moment, Um.
3: I'm I mainly read fiction. Okay. Uh, for if I'm going to read a book from the beginning to the end, it nearly always has to have a story. Yes. I, I, there are uh, non-fictional writers that I dip in and out of, mostly yeah. essay writers. Yeah. Okay. But uh, I would—it's mainly fiction. And I go yeah. through phases of where I read, and there have been that's been a phase now for about the last okay. six months <laughs> where I read nothing but thrillers because thrillers okay. are kind of my escape, uh, yeah. okay. easy easy reading. And yeah. I was trying to think what they have in common. I know the writers I like. Yeah. And when I read the back of a new writer, I kind of know whether I'm going to like it or not. Yeah, okay. So I tend to like uh, psychological suspense that, are it's mainly about character. Okay. Uh, people like Sophie Hannah. I've just finished *The Narrow Bed*. It's her new one. Okay. I don't know if you've read any of hers, but she's she has two. There's two detectives in somewhere in around the Lake District or somewhere in England, and yeah. <laughs> but they they're not the main characters. Each book there's, a, there's a, the the there's the main character is, uh, is somebody who's involved in that mystery. Okay. And those two detectives, Charlie Zaylor and uh, Simon, well, Simon Waterhouse, I think they're married. They're both very dysfunctional in different <laughs> ways. Yeah.
2: What I was actually reading before I came up was the first episode of Breaking Bad. Oh,
0: okay, very good. The script one, The script, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. So I read scripts and stuff oh, like okay. that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm doing a course in film base in okay. sc- tv writing at the moment oh, very good. Okay. so that the the script is part of that course we're going through the program bit by bit and mm-hmm. seeing the structure of it and how it was put together and all that you know so uh, it's it's quite good actually the script yeah. you know it's very very well written you know
3: non-fiction even more yeah. Maybe, um, I quite like humorists, David Stars. Have you mm. read David Stars? Yeah, I can uh, highly recommend okay. him. When yeah, you're I engulfed by frames, Flames, I'm re- reading those, those essays at the moment.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, they're mainly just about his life and it's, it's changed over the years, it's kind of more domestic now than it would have been 20 years ago. Okay, yeah. um, but he's just really, really funny, but <laughs> yeah. very insightful as well about how people are with one another yes. and how we are in our heads. Yeah. Um, I quite like political commentary. Christopher Hitchens one of my favourites there. Okay. I'm mm-hmm. still not over Hitchens. I was just uh, thinking, how long recently is it since he died in 2011? Yeah. the end of 2011, I'm still not over yeah. it. I think I took it harder yeah. than people mm-hmm. who actually do.
0: So they are not always what you might expect.
5: Well, I've just finished um, Anne Enright's The Green Road. Okay. Um, and. It's a little bit unfortunate because I really liked The Gathering, which is okay. very dark. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Green Road I found not as satisfactory, okay. I have to say, at all, although it's, you know, maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. It's been shortlisted for lots of prizes, There's parts of it that are beautiful, I mean, she, can, she the woman can write, yeah. obviously. And some of the descriptions, even of the you know the farm, the farm in Clare, the countryside in Clare, I thought were gorgeous. But yeah. th- I just felt that the characters didn't really ring true for me. Didn't okay. hold together. Okay. Particularly the section, and um, set in New York in the 80s, where yes. uh, okay. which one is it? Is it is it Dan, the the um, the the gay guy who's living over there? And I mean I had. Fr- gay friends in the 80s who were going through that, not in New York, but in London and places like that. And it just didn't ring true.
4: Sometimes I think, well, I want a kind of a gentle read now, a kind of a nostalgic read. Uh, Other times I I will want something more edgy. I read a lot of crime fiction um, or something, it might be more something more philosophical, or, or whatever. N- n- no, uh, I, I like all genres, really, in fiction, with probably the exception of science fiction. I'm not interested in other worlds. I think our own is interesting enough without going to a make-believe planet, you know, and me- meeting a make-believe uh, species. So, yeah.
5: I'm always looking at for new authors, because what I'm finding is I'm, is getting older, and re- I've been reading such a long time that I can get very excited about an author that I really liked, and then I read something. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a breed as well, like the Ian McEwan's and the Sebastian F- Fox that I used to love, yes. and now yeah, I yeah. think they've got they've either got lazy or yeah. I've just okay. not just not relating it, it yeah. to to it anymore. Hmm. Um, but that's why but i i you know i still have my old favorites if there's a margaret atwood out there yeah. i'll read it okay. and even if she's got she's she's terribly dark and she <laughs> the last one was just very vicious <laughs> <laughs> okay. but just she's just such a brilliant yeah. writer and yeah. she doesn't pull her punches no. you know yeah. what she, what she thinks she says yeah.
0: as one might expect there was significant interest in irish writing
6: um, just a yeah. book that I'd recommend yeah. if you haven't read before. It's a okay. book by um, a lady called Sarah Baum She's yeah. an Irish author. She's won a couple of prizes. Yeah. And it's called Spill simmer Falter mm-hmm. with her. Yep. And it's probably the best book I've read in years. I just absolutely loved it. And it's okay. the only book I think that I've actually stopped and started to read passages out loud because I okay. didn't want to miss a word. Of it. <laughs> um, and so that would be my recommendation to people if they haven't read it.
2: And then I read one of the shortlisted ones from the next year, I think it, I think it was the next year, and it was Donald Ryan's The Spinning Heart.
0: Okay.
2: Now, that's really interesting for me because he writes in the same style as I write okay. in. Yeah. Plus, it was a monologue uh, novel. It's okay. about 21 monologues based on the same subject okay. at yeah. different periods in time yes. going on the subject. so i read that twice i thought that was fantastic i really liked it and i don't read much
0: okay
2: yeah or i haven't like i've worked in different parts of the council and since i came into libraries i've I've read more books than i ever read my whole life before you know
0: yet again there were differing opinions
5: I don't actually read a whole lot of Irish um, writers, yeah. mainly because in that case they're really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> but, but um, And that's why it's great when you read somebody like a, a Kevin Barry, who's also depressing but has a kind of a liveliness or a kind mm, of a yes. virtuosity about it, that that, it isn't like Column Tulline who just puts word after word and yeah. describes somebody tying up a parcel, and <laughs> awesome. you say, why am I reading this? <laughs> um, <laughs> Or I, I really like um, um, Paul Murray as well. Mm, yeah. I really enjoyed Skippy
0: Skippy mm-hmm.
5: So It was just because it's different.
0: Soon it was time to say goodbye. My next stop was one of Dublin's other 19 city libraries. My journey took me across town to Cabra, where there is a newer, larger complex. I was greeted, I was greeted by Mark French Mullen, who explained the greater size of Cabra Library is down to the fact that it handles distribution to most of the other libraries in Dublin it is also mostly subterranean.
7: And, and actually,
0: interestingly enough, yeah. a lot of that
7: uh, process happens in this building as well. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, so in this building, we have um, some librarians whose job is basically to, to order the, the new stock. Yes. Um, and so they're doing that in a number of ways. And one of the, the very important ways is in response to requests that we get from the public for yes. um, specific titles, specific yes. titles okay. and, and new titles coming out yes. but also kind of titles that have um, maybe been out for a long time yes. and that we don't have a copy of and um, somebody, you know, there could be new interest in an area <laughs> of whatever health or yes. uh, history or whatever yeah. and um, people start requesting books which you know, maybe hadn't been in print before, yes. or, or okay. you know, that kind of uh, and so we sort of kind of restock or re, um, you yeah. know, restock that area, that area of interest, or, yes. or whatever, okay. or an author. Okay. Um, but also then they would obviously be looking at the newly published um, materials yes. and lists of materials that are going to be published in, yeah, in the near future, future. Okay. and those orders then would be made up sent to our suppliers okay. um, because we have yeah, okay. contracted suppliers yes. okay. uh, for the different materials okay. and genre types um, and the books and sort of are, books and DVDs and CDs yes. and other materials all come into this building and they are um, added to our system and become available for loan by the public yeah. and are distributed from here to <coughs> <coughs> so you know like sort of yeah. the the, the the boxes of new books yeah. go to the
0: branches from this building. Okay. For anyone who thinks book distribution sounds boring, do you remember earlier in the show when Jackie Ninam explained about the Dublin Literary Award? Well, the announcement of the winner is only the beginning of the drama. For instance, when we have the
7: Dublin Literary Award yes. um, in June usually each yeah. year, um, you know, there's great excitement because we will receive the books, yeah, the shortlist. And the like well, the yeah. shortlist, oh, yeah. but the the winner. Oh yes, like yeah, That yeah. will come in here, yeah, the sealed yeah. boxes, yeah. and they're not opened until the morning, yeah. so <laughs> that people here don't know yeah, who's who has one. won <laughs> until we open the bo- well, or until we either open the boxes or yeah. hear on the on the on the, uh, on on the radio, the radio yeah. you know, has been
0: announced. Unfortunately, the Dublin Literary Award isn't every week, and as Mark explains, the level of service our libraries can provide may be about to change
7: previously um, we had sort of tendered um, for supply of library materials to Dublin City Council yes. libraries yeah, okay. okay and that would be run by Dublin City libraries okay. uh, but we would be obviously sort of liaising and um, using the services of the of the procurement unit in in Dublin City Council yes. okay? okay now the situation is developing because um, the Government policy has been to sort of to look at national tenders for mm, a lot yes. of these kind okay. of things. Now, at the moment, the tender, the contract that we work under, is a contract for supply of library materials to the four Dublin um, local authorities. Okay. okay, so all of the Dublin authorities um, have are working under the same contract with the same suppliers. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and there is movement towards a national contract Contract, which will mean that all the library authorities in the island of ireland or in the republic of ireland at least will be working under the same contract with the same suppliers now that hasn't happened yet and obviously there are sort of some issues to be resolved around that because you know um exactly how that is is run and and who you know because obviously if um If there are one or two suppliers Mm. who get contracts under that um, tender and others who don't that could have implications for the the book supply industry in Ireland so Um, so, you know I mean it is it is a concern to us in the sense that um, we need the book uh, suppliers to be to be to be there in Ireland We don't want to see them uh, disappear because that would affect the service that we can provide and that is provided to us because um, while there are large international conglomerates which will supply um, books and other library materials, um, there is the very specialist knowledge uh, of of the Irish market which is not... The same as yeah. the English yes, market or the precisely. or the American market yeah. and so on, um, and also there is the, the the very important part of of the um, the Irish interest publications mm. and Irish publications publications that are that are published in Ireland, yes. um, and the international the large conglomerates don't have that knowledge of these very small publications and so on, which are very important to our users of library service and to to our culture, as you say, like in our, 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 well, you know, like I mean, Ireland is the land of saints and scholars.
0: Towards the end of the interview, we head outside. I am required to sign my name and time of arrival into a logbook before we go into the loading bay. I'm about to be shown the interior of one of Dublin's two mobile libraries.
7: They provide a, a library service to areas of the city where there isn't um, direct access to or convenient access to the normal library service, yes. or areas where there are um, special uh, disadvantaged areas, okay. or areas, um, or and people who, who you know who basically have uh, mobility issues and and don't find it easy to to get um, some. Dis- um, so the role of uh, the mobile libraries is really a lot
0: to do with social inclusion. Yes. The first thing I notice about the vehicle is that the stairs retract to form a lift for those with reduced mobility. The desk is towards the front, where the librarian sits beside the driver, who also serves as attendant. There is a attendant. There is a third seat further down, which I can only assume is for ride-alongs. This doesn't seem like it would be allowed, though, and my suspicions are confirmed when I ask Mark. Many of the shelves spin in order to make more effective use of the space. There is also other media available, such as audiobooks in the children's section. Mark points out that adults also like to listen to audiobooks during their commute.
7: Um, so we service two areas of the city where there's difficulty accessing normal light services, services. Some examples of that might be Trimna, mm. which is a large area where there's... Not a direct access to, to library services. Yes. The East Wall, which you know, just because it's um, slightly enclosed, slightly enclosed yes. and so on, like so it becomes yes. a sort of a separate entity. And Darndale, which again, like you know, is just a, an area where it's just a little bit further away from the nearest library and, and mm. tends to be self contained and, and so on. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, and often these areas coincide with areas of social disadvantage mm. okay. or you know yeah other issues like that or other yeah. issues like that but it has been going for a long time okay and indeed you know like it has changed because mm. um, the oh. library that we're in at the moment yes the building that we're in at the moment provides yes. a library service to Cabra oh, okay which for many many years yes. had no library service and it okay. was a very large area of the city that, that, had, no that, library. Had, that had no library or, okay. the, or or a very small library in Phibsborough perhaps you know yeah. okay. um, and now there's a new the latest the newest library in Dublin City yeah. Council area is Cabra Library, right. um, and it provides a, obviously a service to the to the area here, yeah. and that means that you know like they don't generally require uh, a mobile library service in this area. So no, okay. as developments happen, yeah, the service be, changes, yeah. yes, okay. but there are still large areas because Dublin City is kind of a large, yeah. dispersed. Kind of area exactly. of population, yeah. and so it's difficult to 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 provide physical um, permanent libraries yeah. in every, every accessible area. to every area. Yeah. You know? So there is still
0: a role for, for the for the library service, but it has been. Indeed, it seems there are a few places the mobile libraries will not go.
7: The other kind of another aspect of the the
0: mobile library service or linked to it is the housebound service. Yes. Okay.
7: okay so the same staff run that, right. and for that service we use a small vehicle. We have a smaller kind of you know normal sized van um, which you know a librarian would go out with a driver Um, and that provides a service to individuals in their homes who for mobility reasons or whatever cannot uh, access a normal library service Um, and they also visit institutions like nursing homes Mm. or sheltered housing complexes to provide a library service, okay. so they would sort of bring to individuals, yes. um, you know, a, a selection of um, books, books. Okay. or you know books on tape or yeah. MP three. Okay. Um, usually, sort of, kind of, they would they would sort of take into account um, what they know of that individual and their tastes. Yes. Okay. So they might just bring items, you know, from a particular genre of literature okay. or whatever, yeah. um, or area of interest of that person yes um, or they will also sort of kind of bring specifically requested titles yes. to that person okay okay um, the third part of the, the service is um, the visits to schools okay okay very good. now the vehicles are very large um, so that sort of limits where they can go yeah. um, we have to be very careful in how we um, where, we, where we visit so each stop that we decide to, to make we have to, as it were, um, assess
0: okay. the area yes. and
7: exactly okay. where we're going to stop and park yeah. so that we can provide safe and easy access for yeah, the, people the people using it yeah. okay. and okay. we don't cause obstruction to, yeah, to other users of the road okay. for instance. So in terms of schools um, we would again be looking at schools which are mm. geographically so, located yes. far from yeah, a library service, library. Yeah. Um, but also schools in disadvantaged areas. So some of the okay. schools we'd visit would be in uh, the city centre in okay. Basin Streets, uh, yes. Basin Lane rather, um, and others then would be sort of out um, on the edges of Dublin City okay. Council area. You know, yeah. Um, okay. So those kind of factors. Um, and they would visit the schools on a regular basis and the students would sort of mm, learn how to use and uh take advantage of library services. services. Services.
0: I was impressed by the level of service our libraries provide, but the issue of the national tender was still looming large in my mind. On first reading, the prospect of a national tender may not seem like an existential threat to an institution such as a library, but as Mark points out, any decrease in the breadth or variety of library stock would represent a decline in the standard of service provided to Dublin citizens. As we have found out, much of the library's day-to-day existence revolves around comprehensive access to resources for anyone who may happen to want them. On that optimistic note, I made my way back into town. Still ringing in my ears, however, were the parting shots of the librarians in Pear Street. Well. <laughs> just a bit
2: about the libraries they're a great yes. service Yes. Okay. they don't just do On books, that very they do the internet they, way back yes. into town. they do DVDs, yes. Just I think there's over 3,000 DVDs in Ballymun library alone that's just yeah. one library yeah. so they do talking books, so if you don't want to read a book yeah. if your eyes get tired or whatever yeah. you can just stick one in your DVD player or some of them have little things like iPods, uh, I can't remember what they're called my the yeah, the the yeah. earphones. The whole thing is in the box. You just pick it up, turn it on, put it in your ears, and listen to the book. Yeah. And uh, there's events on and all the library. Yeah. We have a big 1916 event. We have music. We have poetry. We have all sorts of things happening. So use your library. It's free, you know.
4: <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, there is a party shot, and I, I, because I, I, one of the, I, I, I think my my main kind of interest in in, uh, in reading, in a sense, is to access people who have been forgotten. Okay. And I think uh, there's so many wonderful writers who have been forgotten. Yeah. Uh, you know, the same with films, which is a big interest of mine, particularly old Hollywood films, uh, theatre, so on. Um, because, you know, Shakespeare look after himself, and... Beckett and Beckett and so on, and uh, um, Joyce. Uh, uh, not that these people aren't interesting, of course, but uh, yeah, my p- special interest is in the forgotten um, voice. And I'd urge people to uh, browse more thoroughly and seek out some of those uh, unsung heroes and heroines. Thank you very much
0: in our next show we will be speaking to independent booksellers in dublin and galway so be sure to tune in until then here is the conclusion of hugh's story see you again
1: I wanted to ask her other questions. I wanted to feel words in my mouth. She spoke about Nikola Telsa. I read the other day that Nicola Telsa had a fear of hair. He refused to touch anyone's hair, his included. He had a fear. To say he had a fear is to say he owned it. It wasn't a primal thing like being afraid. It was distant from him, like a hobby. He chose fear for a hobby. He chose as his fear one of the few things a human cannot escape. The hair that grows from almost every inch of their skin. I respect that, even if I find it ludicrous. In my opinion, hair should be trampled on, destroyed. She ran a hand over the smooth skin of her head as she said these last words. There is a caution. A submerged panic in her movement that I didn't understand, not that I tried. Instead, I wallowed in the course of her strange thoughts. They were rare rib-eyed steak-like thoughts. Luscious and wrong somehow. I tasted them, slowly, silently. We were alone in the shop, if two people can be that. Almost finished. She undid my cape and flicked my neck with a soft, bristled brush. She puffed a powder about my head, then made some finishing snips. How many hairs do you think I cut off your head just now? She asked, gesturing with his open jaws of her silver scissors. The radio had been off for some time. I looked down at the scattered black strands that minutes ago had grown from my head. I glanced around. The row of empty chairs beside me looked like each should be surrounded by clear perspex walls, straps on each arm. I suddenly felt foolish for having trusted her to run those scissors through my hair, to scrape that razor along the skin of my neck. Her thoughts were pieced on me, returning misshapen and tasting of bile. Fully aware of my propensity for alarm, and of the nature of this world, which means that any moment can become the last moment without reason or explanation, I strove for calm, and studiously brushed at hairs that had escaped down the collar of my shirt, then bent to evacuate a handful of hairs hiding beneath the cuff of my left trouser leg. Barber, young gentleman, being in liquor, a fine girl in Hamilton Street, had had certain favours the night before the barber, his wife, in a frenzy, Cut the gentleman's throat from ear to ear. These fragments ran before me, carried, no doubt, from some distant memory, by the wave of blood rushing, breaking on a tension shore when I bent. I stood up, too quickly. A dizzying tardiness came over me. A tardiness innocent Samson must have felt by the end of his story. Darkness crept. I collapsed back into the chair as if the roof were falling in, my head falling against the stitched leather back. At once, I felt madly sorry for my hair. Tears overflowed my lacrimal lakes, those hidden reservoirs of sorrow found in books and anatomy, and just beside the eyes, which might as well be oceans. But hairs is simply a nuisance to be dealt with, inefficient once their number passes increase a certain border. I thought I had thought that. Greasy unless frequently washed. That's what I thought. Forget them. That's what I would do. But what happens to them? I asked. They are sold to make wigs for bald children, or burnt, I don't know, she said from over by the counter, as she took a sip from a mug. I looked again, at my hair scattered on the shop floor. If my body were a country, I would be its cruel government, the tyrant hidden in bulletproof convoys, in hilltop castles, its cuffling austerity. And my hairs, my defenceless hairs lying where they had fallen, what would they be? The disabled, the defenceless poor, burnt or made into wigs for bald children. But surely this has always happened. Nobody escapes the encroaching past. They must be swept away with the dirt and the dust begets dust. There will always be more, I imagine. I imagine those children, innocent. This is innocence when you are unaware, innocent to benefit from the unethical, the second or third-hand murder of the fifteenth. Nobody could blame them. Growing up with their borrowed hair, they learn too late. How many hairs have I willingly had decapitated in my life? Not as many as some, I can say that, at least. I could change. There is almost always time for change. I closed my eyes and pretended to sleep, and tried desperately to think of a way to save those hairs. I found the night inside me. No thoughts or feelings, no brilliant plans. No remembrance of her and her delicate hands tracing her dining map, though I saw that image in every dark corner. No. Thought slouched from some murky swamp, yes, be careful now, but she had disappeared from my mind. The room was silent. I waited. <coughs> I strained to hear the sweeping. Instead, I heard their clamouring galloping now. I opened my eyes, just a little. She stood behind my chair. We remained like that for at least ten agonising minutes, maybe more. My watch ticked off each slow second, though I could not hear for the thundering. I could take it no longer and jumped up, and asked why she had not swept my hairs away. It was getting late, I said, and the shop was supposed to be closed by now. You said so when I came in, didn't you? You said it would have to be a quick cut. I've been thinking, she said. You are not paid to think, you are paid to cut and dispose of my hair, I shouted. In the mirror my face had become red, veins stood out on my forehead, "'Remove these immediately.' "'I kicked at a clump of hair that had probably sat above my ear. "'She said nothing. "'It had turned to silence now, closing in. "'It burrows down and finds more of itself inside me, "'and there is an erosion of the already softening edges of myself until— "'What are you thinking about? What is it?' Her mostly. "'Well, say something, then. "'Tell me your thoughts you've spoken of before. Say something.' "'I was thinking about how funny it is, this business.' "'We are executioners, you know. You do know that.' I was silent, a white wall enclosed by an absence of colour and noise, overwhelmingly captured. "'We are executioners, you know.' I rolled her words on my mute tongue, waiting. "'We are executioners, and you are both customer and victim. "'We have been decapitating living tissue for so long now. "'Once, hair grew to a standard length, just like your arms or ears.' that sweep of a hand across her scalp again. In my country, she said, youngsters were sent into the wilderness when puberty and the terror began to transform their bodies. If they survived this journey, they were to return first to the haircutter's home, usually built on the outskirts of the village. Over seven days, the haircutter would cut and remove every strand of hair. Completely hairless, they then returned to the village to be welcomed as a member of the community, as an adult. At the end of the year, a festival was held, the culmination of which was the burning of the year's hair. Did it it ever grow in the palms, on the soles of our feet, on our our lips? I asked. Certain I would die if I heard the answer, that I would die if I did not. Ask. She may have replied. I am not sure, yet I still live. She said much more about the festival, about the annual harvest and rites that sounded like descriptions of medieval woodcuts, but when I tried to recapture it in writing, I cannot. I could create what she said, but that would be lying. In fact, I just tried that there, but there is nothing there. In truth, it was soothing to have such a voice speak to me, and I the only one in that room, to have his ring loud and running through my ears, like children on a Saturday morning on a warm day like it was. People walked past on the pavement outside and I, briefly free, watched them. Stared at their clothes, a particular gait, one especially, how he reminded me of. Now, hair does not cease. Every day the hairs reach a little further from the skin, in search of survival, freedom. It holds secrets. It grows 76% faster than it did 100 years ago. It grows when you are dead, the ultimate one of manship. It survives you despite your regularly paying for its decapitation. You are smothering it in shampoo and conditioner. She took a long, bristled sweeping brush from her far corner and slinked toward me, trailing as across the floor behind her. Now you understand, she said. I understood less than ever, gathered money, enough to include a tip probably far too much, dropped it on the counter and ran out into the evening air. Even outside I could hear the long passes of the sweeping brush, the shushing and the pushing, and the silent, dead hair. Passing by the window of the butcher shop, my face looked different, Lighter I would have brought bought meat for a barbecue, but they are closed, and I was glad. I felt very tired.
0: I'm Conor O'Donovan and this is Putting It In Writing. Join me again next time when I'll be exploring Irish bookshops. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this and other Headstuff Podcasts on iTunes and Spotify.